You're listening to a podcast from the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. Yeah, I think we're ready. Welcome everybody to the Carnegie Endowment. This is another uh, function that we're doing jointly with the American Task Force on Palestine, uh, in which we look at the Palestinian economy and how it is faring uh, so far. Uh, as you all know, the economy has made significant advances in recent years under Prime Minister Fayyad. Uh, but in recent uh, months, uh, it has uh, really gone under a lot of stress uh, uh, with the continuation of the occupation, uh, and the Palestinian government has taken some very uh, sort of severe austerity measures uh, which have uh, uh, probably uh, affected its popularity. Uh, There's no really group of people to talk about this Uh, that is better uh, than the three I have here. All of them uh, have served in uh, the occupied territory. Uh, Osama Kanaan, to my immediate left, is the IMF's mission chief for the West Bank and Gaza. Uh, He has been the resident representative in Jerusalem for how many years now? Uh, I started in uh, 2007. So four years or five years uh, and worked... uh, (coughs) on several other regions uh, in the World Bank. Uh, uh, To to his left is uh, Prince Firas Raid, who is the acting head of chief, uh, head of mission of the office of the uh, quartet representative, Tony Blair. Uh, And uh, Prince Raid has also been there for a few years now. Two and a half half years. Again, working closely on, uh, on the Palestinian economy. And to his left is Robert, uh, Rob Danin, who's a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations. But before that, he also headed the Jerusalem mission of the quartet representative, Tony Blair, uh, for, uh, for two years. Uh, and uh, served previously as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State and also uh, on the National Security Council when, when I uh, knew him. Uh, so, gentlemen, thank you all for coming. Uh, let us start with Osama, uh, and then we'll move to uh, Prince Firas, and, and then to uh, Rob. Thank so. you, Marwan. Uh, one of the most frequent questions I've been asked um, just over the past week, I just came back from a donor's conference in Brussels. Um, Firas was uh, with me, uh, and, uh, and, and Bob has followed it. Rob has followed it uh, very closely. One of the, the sort of most frequent questions is, is that you know, the situation we're, we're in now, the, the difficulties that the Palestinian economy is facing today, did you actually foresee, foresee it when you first started in 2007? In 2007, uh, for those who, um, who actually remember uh, the, the engagement of the international community to help support uh, the Palestinian economy, in 2007, uh, the Palestinian Authority developed a medium-term uh, agenda uh, or a strategy um, that was endorsed by the executive directors of the IMF, and uh, it was special had a special feature, which is unlike other strategies, um, the commitments uh, were uh, expected to be delivered on by three parties, the Palestinian authorities, the Israeli authorities, and the donor community. And uh, we had targets for growth, for uh, unemployment, 
uh, as well as for um, the uh, uh, improvement in the fiscal situation. As you know, in, in the West Bank and Gaza, fiscal policy is really the main macro tool. There's no domestic currency, there's no exchange, there are no exchange rate issues. So really the way to, uh, I mean, one of the main tools the, the Palestinian Authority can help support macro stability is by uh, moving, helping the economy move towards fiscal sustainability. So we had targets in 2007. And um, as you recall, the government of Prime Minister Fayyad had just started uh, in mid-2007. There was a, uh, a big conference in Paris in December of 2007. Very high profile. President Sarkozy was there, all the, uh, the, the, the uh, uh, important uh, players in, it, in the international community were, were there to support uh, the uh, uh, Palestinian Authority's agenda. And it was a three-year plan, so it covered the period from 2008 to 2010. And, uh, and so the question that uh, there isn't is, well, you know, is this, I mean, what did we uh, expect and how you compare the current situation with what you expected. Uh, I'm just going to focus on two dimensions. First is the, um, the economic growth. Economic growth and linked to that, the expected improvement in living standards. First, and second, uh, the, the, uh, main, the move towards fiscal sustainability and reduce the reliance on donor aid that the Palestinian Authority targeted. And we can leave other uh, aspects to, for the discussion um, later on. But I think these are two important areas because the current crisis that is being faced by the PA really is a result of what has happened in, the, in these two areas. First, economic growth has uh, slowed. Unemployment is still very high at 22% uh, in the West Bank and Gaza. Uh, it's actually over uh, one third in, uh, in Gaza and about 17% in the West Bank, so that's a serious issue. But I think more pressingly, the Palestinian Authority today is, is um, uh, facing a big financing gap in its budget. And as you know, the financing gap has been mostly financed through donors, and donor aid is not forthcoming, and so the Palestinian Authority is faced with a situation where it has to cut essential expenditures including possibly uh, wages and salaries and, uh, and the essential social benefits. So let us see how, you know, how we came to the current situation. What, you know, how did, did the performance of these three parties, Palestinian Authority, Israel, and, and donors, compared with what actually uh, the situation we have now? I think in terms of economic growth, economic growth um, overall in the West Bank and Gaza has turned out to be much better than expected. And uh, we had foreseen 4% real GDP growth. What actually uh, turned out for the West Bank and Gaza uh, over the 2008-2010 period is an average of 8% growth. Um, fiscal sustainability, there was a very impressive move by the PA. The PA had, uh, had cut subs the, the, uh, has cut um, uh, wasteful expenditures, increased efficiency of expenditures, improved transparency. Reliance on donor aid declined from $1.8 billion in 2008 to about $1 billion in 2010. Um, so uh, at the face of it, the record has been good over that period up to 2010. 
Now, what has um, uh, one of the, uh, some of the areas of disappointments are related first to the fact that the economic growth has not led to a decline in, un in unemployment. And that uh, is a direct result of the persistence of restrictions on movement, of, on movement and access, the Israeli restrictions that actually constrain uh, movements of goods, and, of goods in the West Bank and, and uh, of uh, trade between Gaza and, uh, and Israel. And that has, has resulted in a suppression of labor-intensive sectors, mainly manufacturing and agriculture. And um, uh, it has resulted in, uh, in kind of a regional dis uh, disparity uh, in growth, for example, between Area C, that is Area C is at 60% of the West Bank that's restricted uh, to Palestinian investment and the rest of the West Bank, but also between Gaza and the West Bank in terms of standards of living. So it is growth overall that, is, uh, that, that looks impressive, but in fact it is highly distorted. It is not balanced both sectorally and also regionally. So this is the first set of, uh, uh, this is the, the uh, I think, an important constraint that we are now facing. That is, growth is not sustainable because of the quality of the growth. And growth is now uh, uh, diminishing, especially because the restrictions on movement and access are not being eased. And, and actually, the, the pace of easing has slowed uh, uh, considerably in 2011. The, on the fiscal front, the uh, uh, PA has uh, uh, made enormous progress in uh, trimming down, as I said, the uh, inefficient subsidies and focus them to those who truly need uh, the subsidies, especially the electricity subsidies. But um, also, it has uh, restrained the growth in the, uh, in the wage bill. And that has the reduction in reliance on, on aid has been impressive. However, the aid that finance development expenditures has not been as expected. So we, we had expected something in the order of uh, $0.7 billion per year. What has actually come from donors is, is less than half of that. And so even uh, though the, the, uh, the PA did its best given the tools that it had, um, the uh, important component of expenditures that, that is really important for growth, long-term growth, which is development expenditures, has actually been, uh, uh, the amounts have been very disappointing. And so that also is, relates to the current constraint we have. Growth is slowing down, and uh, there is, um, the indications are that it will continue to slow down unless, uh, unless and until the donors give more money for development projects and uh, the uh, restrictions of movement and access are eased by Israel. And so um, there's another constraint that actually has, uh, uh, has been emphasized by Prime Minister Fayyad lately, which is the, uh, the revenue performance. We had expected that given that 70% of the revenue came from uh, what's called clearance revenue, revenue collected by Israel, uh, on behalf of the PA, that that would actually go up uh, much more than it actually had. And so, as a share of GDP, uh, clearance revenue went down from 18% of GDP to 15% of GDP. This is another important constraint. Most of the revenue, 70% of the revenue, comes from this source. And so, in the absence of donor aid, something will have to 
uh, some progress has to be done uh, uh, on this front. So we have a aid constraint, we have a cleanest revenue constraint. And uh, this is another area which actually needs urgent attention. In addition, of course, to the disbursement of donor aid. That, that is, there has to be increased collaboration between, cooperation between the Palestinian Authority and the Israelis uh, uh, to uh, raise revenue for the PA to overcome the current uh, crisis. And um, um, at the uh, technical level, there were important, uh, there was important progress. The two sides, the Israelis and Palestinians, have made progress, including on this issue of clearance revenue. So what needs to be done is very clear. Also on the restrictions on movement and access. At the technical level, it's very well known what restrictions need to be lifted in order for there to, uh, to be increased economic activity. I think the constraint now is at the policy level. That is, the policy makers uh, have to give the go-ahead on the restrictions on movement and access, and uh, my colleagues will say more about what these are, and on, uh, to give the go-ahead on measures to improve cleanest revenue collection and, and actually uh, give more money to the, uh, give more resources to the PA. Um, so, you know, we have in, in some the following, uh, I think, uh, priorities uh, that, that we are trying now to, uh, to stress in our own uh, messages. First, of course, uh, given that DPA has reduced reliance on donor aid but still has not fully become self-reliant, donor aid is crucial to prevent the current crisis. Increased donor aid, including for development projects, and that's very important. Development projects may not be immediately, uh, may not yield an immediate result, but I think they're crucial for longer term growth to sustain economic growth. Uh, second, um, uh, the, the agenda for, uh, that, that uh, the Israeli authorities have to uh, um, carry out is continue the relaxation of restrictions and uh, giving the go ahead at the policy level for the clearance revenue measures to be implemented. To, to actually uh, give more revenue to the PA, which is really the main source of, uh, they, they actually carry the main source of revenue. And for the Palestinian Authority, I think the main now challenge is faced with these constraints, faced with the constraint of uh, slow progress from donors and from the Israelis. What measures could they take to relieve uh, the, uh, uh, the pressures on their finances? And I think uh, the PA has developed some contingency, plan, uh, some contingency measures. These are not going to be easy to implement. They could uh, 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 involve uh, even lower expenditures. And that's quite, uh, I think, difficult in an environment where economic activity is already slowing down. Uh, but nevertheless, they are uh, uh, focused now on, on developing contingency measures. And um, what we can do after this, uh, I mean, in, this, in, the, in the discussion, uh, is to uh, try to see uh, what the international community more broadly uh, can do for, to, to actually press these three parties to, uh, uh, to find a, a, a solution to reduce the financing gap. Thank you very much, Usama. Uh, Prince Firas probably will tell us about the exactly that, uh, what the international community is doing and the uh, uh, efforts of the quartet and whether they're limited to the 
economic challenges that Osama talked about or whether they also extend to uh, political issues and uh, freedom of movement issues. Politics <laughs> is over here. Uh, thank you, Marwan, for your uh, kind words in the beginning. And thank you uh, to the Carnegie Endowment and to the American Task Force uh, for Palestine under the able leadership of uh, Ziyad, Naila, Ghaith, and Hussein. I should say maybe Naila, Ziyad, and then Hussein and, and, and Ghaith. But thank you for for organizing uh, this uh, today. I'm here in my capacity as uh, someone uh, involved with the Office of the Quartet uh, Representative in Jerusalem. And I'll share with you uh, our perspective uh, on the economic challenges facing uh, the Palestinian uh, Authority. And I, I think Rob will then get into some of the, the implications of these challenges uh, going forward. Uh, I got a, when I was discussing with my family yesterday, uh, this event, I, I told them I'm coming here. My oldest daughter said to me, well, are you going to be talking about the, the quartet? And I said, yeah, to some extent I'll be speaking about the quartet. And she said to me something very clever. She said, make sure the instruments are, are tuned well. And <laughs> I told her, well, I, surely, I surely hope so. Uh, sometimes they are, sometimes they aren't. Um, but I'll maybe just describe five challenges that I, I see going forward and then in the Q&A, we, uh, we can engage in a more detailed uh, discussion. Um, the first challenge I would point to, and this speaks to the larger challenges in the, in the region as well, is the issue of joblessness, the very high unemployment rate. And Usama was talking about the general rate in the West Bank uh, and in Gaza. But in fact, when you look at the youth unemployment rate, uh, it's really one of the highest in, in the world. Uh, in the West Bank, it's about 25%. Uh, in the Gaza Strip, about 46%. Uh, overall, it's a third uh, in both the West Bank and, uh, and the Gaza Strip, about 33%. And that is tremendous uh, for any government, for any society to create jobs. Uh, it's, it's, it's a tremendous task. And under the current constraints uh, governing the business environment, the investment climate, um, it is difficult uh, to do. Uh, Gaza has its own considerations. The restrictions that are still uh, imposed on the Strip, uh, I think they go a long way to explaining the, the, the unemployment rate that we see. Uh, within the West Bank, uh, there is an issue, I think, of, uh, of labor mobility, which Usama talked about. Uh, but it's not so much within uh, the West Bank, it's between the West Bank and overseas and the West Bank and, uh, and Israel. One thing that we've tried to do in the office of the quartet is to work on increasing the number of worker permits for unskilled Palestinian workers to work in Israel. Uh, there is such, a, I think, an excess now of, of labor uh, supply within the West Bank uh, that, that uh, this, this type of policy uh, initiative makes sense. And I would say, you know, there is a bit of a policy debate to what extent do we want to encourage this uh, because if you do encourage this type of labor uh, flow into Israel where the, the, the salaries, the wages are almost three, four, five times the, that they are in the West Bank, it creates a distortion within the Palestinian economy. And then this incentivizes Palestinian youth uh, in terms of, skills, knowledge, higher education, and so forth. Uh, the average Palestinian worker in Israel in the construction sector 
probably earns about 5,000 shekels per month, and that's more than twice the median wage of an of a unskilled uh, worker in the West Bank. Um, so the, the, it's a trade-off to what extent do you, do you promote, the, promote this. But I think in our view there is enough slack in the system to, to promote this kind of uh, initiative. Um, I'll just touch a little bit. I think the second challenge that I see is uh, one related to the overall in investment climate and the political instability uh, associated with the conflict, I think, is one big explanatory factor. Uh, people and businessmen and investors in the region and around the world want to make sure that their investments uh, are, are safe. And we can't rely, uh, I think, anymore going forward on the charitable view of, uh, of investments. Social investments will only uh, take you uh, so far. Uh, but to encourage real investment coming in, you, you really need an environment which will allow, as Osama was saying, the free flow of individuals coming in. Uh, an investor who puts down 100 million would want to visit that investment uh, in multiple ways. Uh, so one big uh, factor that we have been dealing with are the rules, the Israeli immigration rules that govern the entry of uh, outside investors uh, to the Palestinian Authority. And for the investors coming from the West who don't need prior visa arrangements, it's easier. But for those nationals from countries without uh, diplomatic relations, it's, it's much more difficult. And at the OQR, we've been working with the Israeli government to make sure that this kind of system is much more transparent, effective, reliable. And it's, it's done through the Palestinian Authority, but the Israelis uh, are in charge of the authorizing environment. Um, there's also an issue of access to finance, which affects also in investments, uh, the investment climate overall. Uh, we've been trying to work with different institutions overseas to ensure that different investments are guaranteed. There, there is the issue of political risk, and there are uh, different institutions, including my own, the World Bank, that provides political risk insurance. And we're, we're happy that, to see that this has been going forward and, and, and covering certain investments uh, that have been flowing into Palestine, particularly uh, from from Europe and the Dutch government uh, in, in particular uh, lately. Another area that we focused on uh, is the whole area of housing uh, in the West Bank, but also in East Jerusalem. Uh, with mortgage finance, it's always difficult if land cannot be used as collateral. And because land registration was not completed in many areas of Palestine, and particularly in East Jerusalem, uh, the land is not there as collateral, and then uh, that creates problems with access to finance because most banks who lend for housing purposes want that kind of security. So we've been working with, with donor organizations to try to make sure that there are guarantee deposits to, to guarantee uh, commercial and political risks that the, the banks uh, may be taking. Um, quickly, another challenge uh, more generally is the restrictions, and Usama touched on this uh, as well, on the Palestinian economy to grow. Uh, and here, uh, Area C was mentioned. This is something that we are focused on within the OQR and, and other uh, partners. Uh, it's a tremendous uh, proportion or uh, percentage of the West Bank. Uh, contains the Jordan Valley, and uh, the Palestinians would 
have to be allowed to access that land to to expand politically. There are uh, restrictions at at the moment. Uh, we're trying to uh, develop systems where procedures would be fast tracked. Uh, the system would be made more reliable. Uh, but I, I think access to land uh, is, and with land also comes access to returns to scale. Uh, most economies, industries need uh, need large, you know, plots of land to access. Uh, returns to scale in terms of scaling up uh, their productive processes. One one thing that you always hear about the the aid that flows to Palestine is that eighty ninety percent of that aid that goes into Palestine then goes to to Israel uh, through the trade deficit. Uh, most of the imports coming into the West Bank are from from Israel, and one way around that is encouraging more local productivity and then more local consumption. But because of the restrictions on Palestinian manufacturing uh, and and land access to land and natural resources has something to do with that. Uh, it's it's a bit of a problem. It, access to industrial inputs is something else we've been focusing on, uh, and especially inputs that are perceived as dual use. Uh, and uh, dual use, uh, we have become very familiar. I think both Rob, I, and Usama with the multiple uses of sulfuric acid and nitroglycerin and uh, you know all the chemicals that can be can be used in different ways but generally i think we believe that this regime of dual use can be reviewed and made much much more uh, much more efficient um, one other i think uh, challenge is not only land but natural resources um, the palestinians now have have uh, uh, an endowment uh, from nature which they have not yet been able to access. That uh, I think should be coming in the near future. We don't know when. It is a big gas reserve in the Mediterranean. Uh, if they're able to access this with the necessary safeguards, it could be a great boon to the Palestinian economy and and the fiscal position of the, the Palestinian Authority. Um, challenge number four, and this is related to the others, is external trade, opening up Palestine to the world. It's a small economy, and I think uh, adopting an export-oriented position, uh, given the entrepreneurial nature of the Palestinian society, uh, would be a, a very good way to, to go. Uh, the challenges uh, that confront this kind of policy are many. One is trade facilitation, the capacity of some of the crossings to facilitate greater trade. One thing we're working on uh, in the OQR with the Palestinian Authority, the Israeli government, the Jordanian government, uh, is trying to containerize uh, the Allenby Bridge to facilitate the trade with containers um, instead of on open pallets, which is the system now which exposes a lot of the merchandise. Uh, and 90% of all trade in the world is done through containers and trying to link Palestine to uh, the markets of the world uh, through strategic uh, trade corridors is, is sort of the objective. Um, there's also the inability of the Palestinian Authority to fully take advantage of the free trade agreements it has with the Arab countries because usually FTAs rely on reciprocity. If the Palestinians accept or expect a certain treatment by Arab countries in terms of quota-free and custom-free, the Arab countries then would expect the, the same treatment and it's it's difficult given the kind of economic 
relationship the Palestinian Authority is with, with the state of uh, Israel at the moment. Um, lastly, on, on trade specific to Gaza, uh, we were able to work with the Israeli government to allow for uh, Gazan exports to third markets overseas. Um, I think this is a big, uh, it's a big accomplishment. However, uh, reaping the fruits will take a long time because of the lack of market contacts between Gazan manufacturers and, and, and European, for example, markets or, or American. Uh, the more traditional markets are Israel and the West Bank, and we're trying to push for a decision to allow the sale of Gazan products in the West Bank, will, which will really, I think, deepen and sustain the economic recovery uh, in, in Gaza. Uh, lastly, and I'll, then I'll stop here, uh, the, the remaining challenge I see is trying to unleash growth in strategic sectors uh, in the Palestinian economy. Uh, one we've been working on and uh, started under Rob's leadership was the tourism sector. Uh, it is it a tremendous, there's tremendous potential. I don't need to tell you the whole concept of holy land tourism can grow exponentially uh, if there's stability and if there's more coordination between uh, both sides. And we've been trying to facilitate more coordination between Israel, Palestinian Authority, and, and even Jordan, uh, because all three countries can benefit from this type of, uh, from the, the, the promotion of this type of, uh, of concept. Um, agriculture is another uh, big area. The Jordan Valley, again, and I think the whole concept of developing the Jordan Valley, and this also began under, under Jordan uh, with, uh, in terms of master planning or developing an integrated plan, uh, the whole idea was that you you grow stuff and you send it to Europe uh, in the same day and you can penetrate European markets during the European winter. And, and Palestinian producers now are, are doing just that. But scaling that up is difficult given the restrictions uh, on land and water and, and so forth. Pharmaceuticals is another growth sector which I think has has tremendous uh, potential, and there are restrictions there in terms of access uh, to markets and to industrial uh, inputs. Uh, I'll stop there, uh, and happy to entertain questions. Rob. Thank you. Thank you very much, Firas. Uh, Rob, we've heard uh, two accounts rather bleak of the economic uh, conditions with the high unemployment figures, with the loss of uh, donor aid and, and other challenges. Uh, perhaps in your remarks you can give us a flavor of the political context. I mean, how sustainable uh, is this situation in the context of the Arab uprisings? A lot of people wonder why we have not seen any sort of uh, 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 eruption of any sort, uh, whether against the PA or against Israel for that matter, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in a situation that does not look to be sustainable. So I hope you can address some of these points. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you, Marwan. It's really a pleasure to be here back at, uh, at the Carnegie Endowment doing another uh, uh, joint event uh, with Carnegie and the American Task Force for Palestine. Uh, so thank you for inviting me back. And uh, it's great to be amongst uh, three former colleagues, all of uh, whom I've worked very closely. And so, um, um, and thank you for, uh, for your attendance. It's nice to see so many uh, friendly and faces in the audience. Um, Osama rightly pointed, uh, took as his point of departure, I think, uh, 2007, uh, because I think 2007 was a very important year. 
Uh, Osama linked it to the initiative uh, uh, made by uh, Prime Minister uh, Fayyad uh, in uh, his economic uh, program. But I'd like to sort of put it into a larger framework, both in the Palestinian context and in the international context. Uh, because the economic uh, uh, dimension that, that the two, my two colleagues have spoken about is one leg of, of what I would call a, a three-legged uh, uh, triangle, uh, uh, all of which is meant to be self-reinforcing. If you recall in 2007, as Osama pointed out, you had the launching of this very bold economic initiative uh, by uh, Salam Fayyad, uh, which was paradoxical in the sense that on the one hand it was meant to be uh, a movement towards self-empowerment. The Palestinians would do what they could to improve the Palestinian economy uh, under occupation, but despite the occupation, in the words of uh, Salam Fayyad. Uh, no longer would they try to blame everything on all the uh, factors that, that inhibit uh, uh, their ability, but rather try to do what they could uh, in the context of an occupation, that's there being the, par the paradox. The paradox being that on the one hand, you do what you can as if there's no occupation. On the other hand, uh, you uh, have to address the fact that there is an occupation and work with the fact that uh, there are occupation authorities. Now, this economic approach um, was quite dramatic in that it, uh, it, it did produce the sort of results that uh, both Osama and uh, Firas have spoken about. But it was predicated on a, on a larger concept, uh, 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 which encompassed not only economics, but security and ultimately diplomacy. Recall in 2007 you had the launching of the Annapolis process, uh, the Annapolis Peace Conference uh, that was held in the autumn of 2007 uh, was designed to relaunch uh, Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. Uh, in today's context, that's almost passe, but recall, uh, this came at the, after uh, you had had the brutal, uh, bloody, um, uh, uh, deadly uh, Second Intifada that had resulted in so many dead uh, Palestinians, so many dead Israelis, and the death of all hope in a negotiated settlement. And with the uh, launching of the Annapolis process, the, what was thought unthinkable was uh, realized, which was the bringing together of the Israelis and Palestinians back to the negotiating table, seriously engaging on a final status issues. At the same time, you had a third dimension, which was the um, beginning of a training process uh, by the United States in Jordan of Palestinian security forces. Uh, this was critical because what it did was it took um, the Palestinian uh, security forces, which ranged anywhere from a dozen to 18, depending on your math, um, disparate forces that had all been um, not only uh, disunified or ununified, but actually working against one another, um, working uh, uh, quite uh, uh, non-transparently. Their accounting system was non-transparent. They were not accountable to a civilian rule. What was under the under the the aegis of the the, the roadmap, which which Marwan played an instrumental role in in helping to bring about um, the roadmap had called for the creation of a unified security force accountable to a civilian oversight. And in 2007, you had the real beginnings of that serious effort, such that you had the beginning of an effort by the Palestinian security forces trained in Jordan to return to Palestine and start to actually provide security for Palestinians. 
And you had the situation beginning in the northern West Bank and then slowly expanding throughout different parts of the West Bank where the Palestinian security forces were able to retake control of areas that had been um, taken by the Israeli security forces in the second intifada. And so what you had really was the rolling back of the second, of the reaction to the second intifada. Um, and this was critical because, so you had the economic cooperation beginning, which is predicated on the notion that if you start to lift the access and movement restrictions, then Mother Nature or the laws uh, or Adam Smith's uh, hidden hand would, would, uh, would, take, uh, would do its work. And we saw the results. But this was predicated on the ability for the Palestinian security forces to provide security to Palestinians in the first instance, so that places like Janine, which had been the, one of the hotbeds of terrorist activity in the Second Intifada, became an area where Palestinian men and women could w walk at night, uh, no longer harassed by militia forces. So what you had was the creation of what I would call a virtuous cycle, where economics, politics, and security were all working in parallel um, in the right direction to reinforce one another. Um, so we used a shorthand, which was to say, you know, we're trying to build the Palestinian state from the bottom up through all the sorts of measures that Osama and, and Faraz talked about, while at the same time trying to create the political conditions for that Palestinian state through negotiations. Um, this was a radical departure from the previous uh, peace process approach, which was meant to, which had been essentially all worked through the negotiating room, the table. I mean, basically, if you recall in the 1990s, the whole effort had been to produce a state through negotiations only. The problem with that approach had been that the whatever progress was being made in the negotiating room was to totally divorced from whatever was ha what was happening on the ground. And so that increasingly, even though there may have been, and I think there was serious progress being made in the 1990s through, for, th uh, towards um, uh, a convergence of, of views towards a final status agreement, Palestinians and Israelis on the ground didn't see it. In fact, they saw the worsening of conditions. Israelis saw an upswing in violence and terrorism. Palestinians saw greater settlement activity and uh, greater access uh, and movement restrictions imposed upon them, such that when the final moment came in 2000 for a final decision to be taken, the groundwork was not prepared because popular opinion no longer believed in the peace process. So this whole triangular approach that I described in 2007 was meant to address that, to bring a popular dimension, to have a self-reinforcing element where improved conditions on the ground uh, would create better conditions, more hope for the future that would then support the negotiators in the negotiating room who could then make the concessions that they would need to make to make peace. It all sounds great, and in fact, in many ways, it was great, especially in retrospect. Um, <laughs> what we've seen is really two-thirds of that triangle recede, if not um, disappear. We have the economic downswing that Osama and Firaz have spoken about, and we have the political stagnation uh, and the absence of negotiations today uh, that, that existed. We still have the third remaining leg of the triangle, which is the security work that is being done by the Palestinian security forces. But the absence of the other two legs of the triangle put a greater burden on the weight and the sustainability of that third leg. 
um, and makes it much more vulnerable and makes the situation much more tenuous and risky. Um, because while Salam Fayyad and, the, and, and Abu Mazen have been able to redefine the whole concept of security away from one that had been uh, historically one of, well, Palestinians won't provide, create a security situation in the West Bank because this will be effectively uh, helping to create a security for Israelis. This was redefined under, under uh, President Abbas and, and uh, Prime Minister Fayyad's authority to saying, no, we're going to provide security for ourselves and by extension to Israelis, and this creates the conditions for everything else to move forward. So let me look at to, uh, from the position of today and sort of telescope ahead to what I think needs to be done. Um, let me identify four important steps that I think uh, need to, to be addressed to, to move forward and get back to what <clears throat> I consider what I call this virtuous um, cycle away from what we're now locked into, which is in many ways a vicious cycle. The first point, I think, is we must return conceptually and intellectually to understanding that this has to be an integrated whole. That you can't treat economics, politics, and security as three discrete pieces unrelated to one another. They are integrated, they are interrelated, they are self-reinforcing. Um, and so to have one without the other uh, uh, doesn't work. And uh, the longer we go without um, the negotiations without economic progress, the more uh, dangerous is the th uh, uh, recidivism on the third track, which is the security track, which makes everything else possible. So we must get out of the mindset that all we need is a return to negotiations. Negotiations alone are, are important, but insufficient. We need more than that. We need an integrated whole. Now, the second and related to that is that we have to have a sense, and I think here, um, uh, let me just say by aside, uh, I'm speaking here uh, entirely informally as, as, uh, for myself as a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. I do continue to provide uh, an advisory role to the Quartet, but all my comments today uh, are my own and uh, uh, whatever criticisms and... Will not uh, be held against you. W w no, will be held, should be held exclusively against <laughs> me. Uh, um, but secondly, uh, what needs to happen is there has to be a sense that what began in 2007, the effort to lift the occupation, there has to be momentum returned to a sense that, the, that we are moving towards an end of the occupation in whatever, in whatever form that may be decided upon in final status negotiations. But without a sense that the occupation will end, then you have all sorts of spin-off problems. You have the lack of economic investment that Firaz spoke about. You have lack of political support uh, from the Palestinian people for the types of negotiations, the types of compromises that will ultimately need to be made. Indeed, you have no real um, uh, support for negotiations themselves, which is why we're having such a hard time in getting uh, the two parties back to the table. So you have to have a sense uh, that the negotiations, uh, that, that rather the occupation uh, uh, will end. Uh, um, and there, I think, you know, Israel has a very important role to play. But to be fair and to be critical uh, all around, I'd say, third, uh, the Palestinians, I, I would argue, need to come up with a coherent strategy. Um, here, I would say the strategy that was out, began in 2007 and identified by uh, Salam Fayyad, that of 
moving towards uh, ending the occupation, preparing the groundwork for uh, Palestinian statehood so that, in effect, the reasons for the occupation would be removed needs to be returned to. Other approaches that have subsequently emerged, and part of them, and this speaks only in part, and I can come directly to the question you raised, Marwan, about the Arab Spring, but right now you have a number of different approaches being adopted by the Palestinians and the Palestinian Authority that I would argue are working against one another. And so you have an approach uh, uh, within the Palestinian uh, uh, politics uh, to forge unity. You have a, a Palestinian effort to create uh, statehood through uh, unilateral efforts within the UN. Uh, you have another effort to uh, forge elections. Uh, and at the same time, you have the continued push to uh, move to improve the situation economically on the ground. These, I would argue, are in tension with one another and in many ways work against one another. They're all tactics, but, the, but, the, but they don't add up together into an integrated whole or an integrated strategy. And so here I think the Palestinians need to um, and, uh, uh, more clearly define their strategy and uh, work towards it. Because otherwise, for example, the reality is there is an occupation. And the strategy of working with Israel to lift the occupation runs at variance with a, an approach that goes to international fora to challenge Israel um, uh, against the occupation. Now, these are both, you know, the merits of these different approaches need, can be debated um, and discussed. But how they work together into a coherent strategy, I think, needs to be considered. Fourth and finally, I, I, the, the last point I would make is there's no such thing as benign neglect when it comes to Israel and the Palestinians. The status quo as it exists today is not self-sustaining. And so here I'm very concerned that the ongoing security cooperation that we have that brings security and helps is a sine qua non for the economic developments that Faraz and uh, Osama spoke about uh, could unravel. Um, there are extremists uh, all around who want to, um, who could easily bring this effort uh, to a halt, um, either by design or inadvertently. And so the margin of error that we're playing with here is very, very slim. Um, and we've all seen the sorts of acts of violence, terrorism, what have you, that have brought this process to a halt in the past. Thankfully, we've not had anything like that or that the system has been robust enough to keep them keep it check, in check. But the situation on the ground is volatile and will continue to be, I fear, unless we uh, return to a, a more <clears throat> aggressive approach. And that means that there needs to be real international leadership. Um, because one of the things I left Jerusalem with, uh, more convinced than ever, is that left to their own devices, Israelis and Palestinians will not come uh, to the kinds of answers and kinds of solutions that they need to left to their own devices. Thank you very much. Rob, uh, well, I have so many questions, but I don't want to <laughs> monopolize the discussion, so I'll maybe weave them in uh, during the question and answer session. Uh, let's take three or four questions at a time. Please uh, identify yourself and limit it to a question if you can. Please, sir. I'm Howard Sumka, uh, the head of One Voice. 
uh, informally the USAID director in the West Bank and Gaza. Um, this is the most depressing presentation I've heard in a long time. This is where I came in six years ago. Um, I, have, I have a bunch of questions, but I'm going to try to just keep them, uh, just maybe two quick ones. One, for Rob, you talked about uh, the Palestinian strategy, and an element that you didn't mention explicitly was the increasing, the increasing uh, move toward and, and pressure for what's called popular resistance. Uh, and, and I see this now uh, in the NGO world as creating a whole different environment on the ground for the kinds of things that that uh, NGOs can 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 do. And Osama, um, or maybe it was Faraz, you talked about the strategic sectors, and I would I, I point out the sort of anomaly that the eighty-eight million dollars that was just released by the U.S. Congress explicitly. Pre prohibited the use of that money for Gaza, which I understand given the Congress. Uh, it also prohibited its use for road construction, which I don't understand for the life of me. And, I, and it also precluded the use uh, of the money for trade and uh, tourism promotion, which strikes me as a signal that the Congress doesn't want the money used for serious Palestinian economic growth. And I wonder if you would be willing to delve into the, the political angle on that. Thanks. Raith. Uh, thank you. Raith Al-Omari from the American Task Force on Palestine. And I also have two uh, questions. The first is to uh, Firas, and it's a technical question. I mean, Rob mentioned the need to integrate the three uh, pillars of, this, uh, of the uh, operation. Um, in practical terms, when you see that uh, security is being dealt with by the American security, U.S. security coordinator and some of the Europeans, you are dealing with some of the economic uh, development. Can you tell us a bit about how the th various players uh, coordinate on the ground? And do we have this integrated uh, strategy reflected in an integrated uh, uh, machine, if you wish? And a question to uh, Rob. Um, you mentioned the need to uh, start trolling back the occupation, creating a sense that the occupation is uh, going to end. Can you expand on that, especially at a time when we see that uh, neither the Palestinians nor the Israelis at this time seem to be too eager to go to the kind of macro-level uh, negotiations, and we see a Washington that is engaged in benign or otherwise kind of neglect? Thank you. Sorry. Thank you. My name is Saeed Erkat, and my question is simple. Seeing how all three of you agree on, uh, on the premise that there is no economic future without ending the occupation, I think you all agreed on that. How can you see possibly uh, economic growth, or how can you define an economic uh, reality that is really independent uh, of uh, the occupation? And does that make the talk about uh, economy and growth uh, uh, moot, a moot issue? or a futile exercise. Thank you. The gentleman behind side, and then we'll, yes. yes um, thank you. I just, my name is uh, Tom Sullivan, and um, Yes, hi. My name is Tom Sullivan, and I just have a quick question about the, uh, it's, this was briefly mentioned about uh, containerizing the Allenby Bridge. Um, I've done a little bit of research on projects of, it was actually a waste uh, management project between Bethlehem and Hebron, but does, uh, Containerizing the Allenby Bridge require any or any additional construction, or is it uh, something that would be done just by changing policies? And if it does require additional construction, would there be 
issues, uh, you know, restrictions that Israel has put in place that might uh, delay such a project, even if they agree to it in principle? Okay. Let's, uh, why don't we start with Europe? Okay. Um, and I apologize if my introductory remarks were too long. I'll try to be brief, therefore, in my answers. Um, Howard, uh, I mean, uh, you asked about um, popular resistance as, as one sort of popular uh, uh, issue on the Palestinian debate today. I, you know, I, I think I was trying to take it one step higher, to, uh, higher level of analysis, uh, uh, to say that there are so many cross-cutting tactics that are under debate today. Popular resistance, one-state solution, two-state solution, resistance. Um, uh, and what I'm suggesting is that they are working against one another. Um, because in essence, you have a divided polity. You have a divided polity geographically. Um, between Gaza and the West Bank. You have a divided polity within Gaza, within the West Bank, a polity that doesn't know where it really wants to go and, more importantly, how it's going to get there and has lost any sense of a real momentum and lost sense of a, of a pathway. Um, and which gets to, the, in, in essence, the two other questions because historically we had always said we need to end the occupation, um, and uh, and that's how we sort of achieve Palestinian statehood. What was always lacking, and what we started to put into place, was a way to get there. And so, in many ways, and this uh, gets to the point of, of the question, Mr. Ar uh, Ericot, which is yes, ending the occupation is the goal, but there has to be a sense of not that the occupation is going to end tomorrow, but that we're on the, up the path towards ending the occupation and that therefore the actions that are being taken are leading towards a constructive goal that all sides can rally around. And this then can, can marshal constructive efforts in that direction. Um, the occupation is going, isn't going to, I mean, what Salam Fayyad was trying to do was basically create the conditions so that those naysayers who said, well, how do you end the occupation? There's no security, there's no economics, there's no infrastructure to remove those arguments one by one. How do you get from A to Z? You get there by working with, first and foremost, your own community, but secondly, with the Israelis, and thirdly, with the international community all in harmony. <clears throat> Today, that sense of working towards that goal has been lost. There's no articulation of that goal, I'd say, coming uh, out of, an, uh, out of uh, anyone right now. And, and it gets to the question that, that, that Gaith was, was uh, uh, asked. You know, how do you um, sort of roll back the occupation? I mean, first you have to convince people that that's what you're trying to do. Um, and right now, there's such a lack of credibility on the ground, on all sides, that that's what's anyone is trying to do. Um, and so I'd say, first of all, you have to start, create a new rhetoric or return to an old rhetoric, which is that's what you're trying to do, you know, that you're committed to a two-state solution and that in order to get to the two-state solution, um, <clears throat> creating the, the conditions and rolling back the occupation with it, the end state being a Palestinian state, two states living side by side in peace and security will be the realization of that effort. Just jumping in quickly, maybe in working my way backwards, starting with a question by Tom on the containerization. 
um, what we've tried to do is uh, ensure that certain things are done to to remove the pretext of, of security. And what containerization you know, needs are modern scanning facilities, uh, a certain upgrade uh, in terms of the physical terminals uh, at the crossings. And we're happy that that's going forward and there's money be behind that kind of uh, work. And I, I think the one thing you always hear from the Israeli side is security, security, security. You take that away, uh, you can facilitate, I think, uh, another and additional uh, important layer of, of trade. Um, on the question of a political horizon rolling back the occupation, I can't agree more uh, with, with Rob. Uh, you need sort of the psychology of a positive trajectory. That storyline is very important for investors and even donors. Amongst the regional donors in the Gulf countries, I think they, they want to get a sense that there is, there is an end destination and that they're not putting money into a process that perpetuates the occupation endlessly. Uh, and so that, that is very important. To Reit's question about economic work and security work, uh, within our unit we have a rule of law team that consists of a security advisor and a, and a legal advisor, one of whom is sitting in this, uh, in this room today. Uh, and they work very closely with the Palestinian judiciary and the security services on different agendas. And so we, we try to make sure that our economic agendas and our rule of law uh, agendas uh, are integrated. Um, and I'm sure Neil will, can brief you a little bit more about, uh, about the kind of work that we're doing. One thing we are pushing for, and we discussed yesterday, is expanding the, the room uh, of operation or the area of operation for Palestinian security forces in Area B. And, and that is, is very important for, for, many different, uh, for many different reasons. Um, and plus, we also see that you can't do, uh, you can't do security reform without legal reform. Uh, you, d you do security reform, you catch a criminal, you put him in the, you know, in the legal system. If the legal system is not up to standard, he'll be out in, on the street the next, uh, the next day. Um, lastly, on transport road construction, uh, Howard was talking about uh, U.S. donor assistance. Not, I don't want to get into the politics of, of donor assistance, but uh, if you ask me whether these sectors, transport and tourism, are very important, I would tell you yes. I just want to follow up <clears throat> on uh, this important question of whether you could have, or you know, does it make sense to talk about growth under occupation? Or to what extent the lack of a solution to the occupation problem uh, uh, constrains growth and, and, and that we need to focus uh, much more on the politics and, uh, and then uh, growth will, will, come up, will come about once we have a solution to the occupation. I think there is a lot of uh, space that is not really uh, exploited. And there is very often uh, the excuse of the, of the political constraint that is used not to make progress on the, political fr on the economic front. And this is by the three parties. You know, with regard to the Israeli authorities, I think there's a lot that can be done, for example, on Area C, giving access, uh, giving access to the Palestinian investors to Area C and to the public sector. Uh, allowing the uh, 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 more thorough explo uh, exploitation of the Jordan Valley, for example. Uh, similarly, uh, with regard to uh, exports from the West Bank Gaza to Israel, there's a great deal that can be done for this very small economy to raise growth in a very substantial way simply by lifting the, the restrictions on exports. This is not 
this could be actually viewed from a political angle, but in, in effect, there's a lot that can be done even with, with, within the existing politi political constraints. Uh, there was a very important question asked about Gaza, you know, to what extent um, uh, public investment in, in Gaza is, is, uh, is actually important uh, to, uh, to raise the standards of living uh, of the Gazan population. Uh, I think that uh, there has been progress made with regard to lifting the blockade very gradually by the Israeli authorities. First, by removing restrictions on imposts to public investments that are uh, um, uh, monitored uh, internationally. And I think in that context, it's surprising that you know, some parties still would, would, uh, would uh, question uh, public investment in Gaza, since actually the Israeli authorities themselves are facilitating that as long as it's supervised internationally. Uh, similarly, um, with regard to the imports of consumer goods to Gaza, there has been progress made. Now there is still a constraint on private sector development in Gaza, and the private sector needs uh, to, to be allowed to import its own inputs. Turning again to the question of political constraints on, for donor, donor aid, I think very often some donors, especially regional donors, use the excuse of the occupation not to give any aid. Still, I think it is important to, uh, to recognize that if you want to facilitate a political solution, you need to actually uh, uh, relieve or, or try to prevent a crisis, a, fin a, fin a financial crisis, that will actually make a political solution much harder to, uh, to obtain. Uh, the Palestinian Authority itself uh, has made tremendous progress uh, in strengthening the Palestinian Monetary Authority uh, uh, capacity, for example, to uh, uh, encourage and, 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 and create the grounds for banks to lend to uh, small and medium-sized enterprises uh, to have a credit registry to ensure that the credit worthiness of uh, uh, borrowers and investors is properly assessed. Within the political constraints, a lot that the Palestinian Authority has done, in addition to the uh, elements, I, the, the progress I mentioned on the uh, public finance front, increased transparency, stronger institutions uh, to, to ensure high-quality expenditures. So I think you know, the, the, it's true that uh, ultimately we need to, uh, the, uh, in, in order for there to be sustainable growth in the longer run, the, the occupation has to be lifted. In the meantime, I think the three sides have a lot to do, even within that uh, constraint. Is there questions from the back? I didn't see anybody. No questions from the back? Okay. From the front? It's <laughs> all so clear. Well, perhaps, perhaps uh, you know, if there are no questions, uh, yes, please, please. Ambassador Hassan Abdurrahman was the. <laughs> I uh, heard a very great. Can you can you use the microphone, please, Hassan? Uh, first of all, I uh, would like to thank the three of the panelists. Uh, Is this working? Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, I heard a very great descriptive presentation about the situation, but very little prescriptive. In other words, uh, 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 Rob said that the international community needs to play a leadership role. What do you mean by that? Uh, and to what extent uh, the international community without the United States can play that role. 
Second, I heard uh, Luns Filas talking about the five challenges. Are those uh, challenges? Because I could not understand how receptive the Israelis are to those five, because all the cards are in the hands of the Israelis at this point. Uh, <clears throat> the economic uh, growth is very much linked to those five challenges. And you cannot really move forward without... I spoke a month ago with uh, former Prime Minister Blair. I asked him, I met him in uh, Abu Dhabi, and I asked him the same question. And he said, we propose to the Israelis, but we, I never heard what is the response of the Israelis to those five uh, challenges. But one final remark I would like to make. We are at a, at a deadlock today. So if you have to advise the parties, the Palestinians and the Israelis, each to do certain steps in order to get out of this deadlock, what would you propose to each party to do? The three panelists. Uh, Thank you. Thank you. Actually, my Ziad uh, Asali, my my question is close to that of Hassan. Uh, we are at uh, uh, political vacuum at this point of political deadlock. It's clear that the United States has no present uh, intention to move politically, and it is equally clear that neither the Palestinian political system nor the Israeli political system are able to move, even if they could, at least for the balance of the year. <coughs> what is to be done in the meantime? I, I understand if politics and security and economics have all to move in the same direction for us to, to achieve things. But in the absence of political movement, what is to be done in the interregnum from now till the, shall we say, till post-elections? Please. Hi, Caitlin Ojo, International Republican Institute. How extensively do you believe economics and security are being affected by the continued lack of elections in the West Bank and Gaza? Thanks. I, I want to add uh, my own uh, comments, if, you, if I can. Uh, and they have to do uh, with the role of the international community as well, Rob. I mean, we have on the podium the IMF, the World Bank, mm -hmm. the Quartet, Tony Blair's office. We don't have the U.S., but we have already on the podium uh, much of the international community. And uh, I would also like to, to add uh, my voice to those who are asking, what can the international community do? And if it's not doing it, uh, you know, what hope do you have that this situation, which is getting bleaker by the day, uh, how sustainable it is, uh, politically and economically? <laughs> this reminds me of, uh, there's, I have a sense of deja vu here. Uh, when I worked in the National Security Council and Marwan was the foreign minister of Jordan, uh, he would often come in and ask the most probing, challenging questions with the, the greatest sense of urgency. 
managing to put us very much on the defensive uh, in trying to explain why we were doing what we were doing and why we weren't doing what Marwan felt we should be doing. Um, uh, <laughs> so, which made him a very, very effective diplomat, I must say. Uh, similarly, uh, Hassan, as ambassador of the Palestinian, uh, uh, the PLO, uh, uh, also was a very effective interlocutor and has not lost any of his uh, acumen uh, uh, today. Look, if there was a magic uh, wand I could wave, or if there was a magic solution, uh, uh, we wouldn't be sitting here. I mean, this is this is easy, and uh, my answer will be, in, uh, by definition, very unsatisfying to you. Um, there isn't a single uh, 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 answer here of, of what needs to be done or what can be done. Um, uh, but let me try to break it down a little bit. You know, wh what does the international community need to do? Well, I mean, that's a, euph you know, that's a euphemism for a number of things, or, or that is an umbrella for a lot of things. Um, on the political side, you have a situation in which President Obama made a speech on May 19th of last year in which he outlined a vision uh, for moving forward on um, borders and security. Um, and oddly, to me as an observer, um, uh, gave the speech and then uh, effectively walked away. Um, and, uh, and uh, well, we've not seen this sort of high-level sustained diplomacy to advance the vision put forward by, by the president then. Um, we're in a maintenance mode. We now, you know, uh, uh, Ziad, uh, probably rightly identified, you know, need to, 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 to make it through the end of the year uh, without a new, you know, we're not going to see a bold new foreign policy initiative um, uh, towards the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, but we've also had some intervening variables as well, um, which gets back to something you asked at the very beginning. I mean, we've had the Arab uprisings. Um, and this has had a tremendous effect, I would say, on American decision-making, on American policy-making. Um, and so to give credit and to be fair to my, my former colleagues, um, who I do still talk to, um, <clears throat> to a certain degree, the, the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has been uh, subordinated to, to, uh, to some very urgent um, uh, situations. I mean, this is the, the nature of policymaking is that the um, important often gets um, uh, uh, pushed aside by the urgent. Um, we've had uh, uh, NATO intervention in Libya. We've had uh, uh, Hosni Mubarak toppled in uh, Egypt. Uh, I need not go through the whole litany. We now have um, uh, horrific bloodshed in Syria. Um, all this, uh, all at a time while the United States is trying to reposition itself away from the Middle East and towards Asia. Um, and at a time when we are, uh, when uh, uh, the president is trying to um, get reelected on a domestic economic platform. Um, all these are, are factors that make it very difficult to, to, to make a convincing case to go into the Oval Office and say, Mr. President, you know, I know you have all these other things on your plate, but what you really need to do is, is put your eggs into trying to resolve this Israel-Palestinian conflict right now. So, I mean, that's just a real world sort of, um, um, sort of uh, 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 some real world reality uh, that affects, you know, the, 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 the lack, uh, you know, uh, that helps explain how we've gotten to this situation. But, you know, at the same time, it's created a, 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 another problem. Um, the international community 
um, is not coming forward with the pledges in fulfilling the pledges that it is, um, it, is, it is made towards the Palestinian Authority. There was the meeting last week in Brussels of the Ad Hoc Liaison Committee um, in which the international community came together to pledge uh, its support for the state building efforts, the bottom-up efforts of Prime Minister Fayyad to give the kind of um, uh, uh, support. But why do we have the fiscal crisis that we have in Palestine today? Um, these gentlemen are officials, so they can't say it in the way that quite the way I would say it, which is people aren't paying up. Um, and it's a real problem. And um, it's a real crisis for the Palestinian Authority. Now, you go to, the, um, to many of the Arab donors and say, who are not put, fulfilling their pledges, then you say, well, you know, in closed doors, well, why aren't you doing it? Um, it this is chump change for you. And they have what I think is a, is a defensible argument, although I don't agree with it. The defensible argument is to say, look, we are not going to fund, become the, the, the bankrollers of the occupation. Um, and without a sense that this is leading to something, why should we make life easy for the Israelis by just defending, you know, by bankrolling the occupation? Now, the reason I don't agree with it is because the people who are actually hurt by this uh, attitude and approach are the Palestinian people. Um, they're the ones who are suffering. Um, and this actually reinforces the, the uh, it undermines the moderates and those who actually want the kind of outcome that I think most of us want in Palestine and, and the sort of peace between Israel and Palestinians that we want and strengthens the hands of extremists. Um, uh, so that donor strategy or that lack of fulfillment of, of pledges um, I think is ultimately hurts the very people that it purportedly uh, means to help. So that's another element where the international community needs to come up. In the absence of a serious political process, nonetheless, I'd say um, the economic investment and support that is badly needed for P Palestine, for the Palestinians, still needs to come forward um, <clears throat> from the Arab world, uh, where it's largely, where, where much of the money has not come, uh, been forthcoming. And the amounts are really quite paltry when you look at the price of oil today, um, et cetera. Just to uh, add my two cents, Yassidi, I think. Uh I agree with, uh, fully with Robin to answer maybe uh, Ziad's question in the sense, you know, what should we be doing now? Um, and I, I would make two points. I think, uh, you know, although I don't want to delve into the politics too much, but I think both politically and economically from now to the end of the year, there has to be something uh, there because it's quite clear that, um, you know, maybe in the general sense, people can wait, countries can wait till the end of the year. But for the Palestinian leadership and the Palestinian people, it's very difficult to just say we will postpone everything for, for 12 months. Uh, so I, I think there has to be something uh, happening, giving a political horizon, uh, some momentum. Uh, the Amman talks were there. They began in January. Um, that the, the, the purpose, I think, was to see and explore whether there would be a basis for starting something. But uh, creating some kind of construct that would be a bridge from now to, to the end of the year, I think, is important both politically and economically. And to answer uh, His Excellency uh, Hassan's question about the economics and how forthcoming the Israelis are, uh, in many different areas, uh, at, uh, up to a certain point, there is a, a lot of coordination, a lot of uh, interaction between our office uh, and the Israelis uh, across a gamut of, uh, of issues. The, the problem that we face sometimes is, is that it's not 
significant enough or large enough uh, as we would hope. And you know, we are are trying to convince them that we, you know, short of a breakthrough, there are much more meaningful steps that can be taken that would signal uh, a certain intent that uh, there is seriousness going forward. So we, we're looking for more kind of. Uh, we're looking for, for game-changing type activities on the, on the economic side. And that, by the nature of things, is very difficult because in many ways they're interlinked with the politics and the permanent status uh, talks. Um, so that makes it uh, all the more harder. I fully agree uh, with Robin Firas and many of the speakers and with uh, Ziad and Hassan as well in, in, the, in, in the importance of refocusing attention on uh, uh, trying to prevent a crisis. I think what has happened over the past, I think for the, over the past year, is uh, the attention has shifted away from the West Bank and Gaza and the Palestinian uh, serious problems to the Arab Spring and other issues, and as well as and that has been made even worse by the uh, global uh, uh, recession and the, uh, the problems that the European Union is facing in the U.S. And um, but. What's important is to realize that we have a crisis that is looming if the actors don't actually uh, try to address it in a very proactive way. The donors have to actually get their act, to, donors have to get their act together, have a predictable framework dispersed, especially from uh, the regional donors. Um, the Israeli authorities have a lot to do, even with the, the current political, political constraints, as I said, on the clearance revenue side, on, on the restrictions. And I think the Palestinian uh, uh, Authority should really keep the momentum of the institution building. I think it's important to uh, have the vision that uh, uh, Rob and Firaz have outlined, but also to try to have practical steps to avert a crisis that could, be, that could come within weeks. Um, may I take a second bite of the apple here? Because uh, we failed to answer uh, your question on elections. Uh, uh, but I think, the, and, and I think it's an important question, but it, it ties into a larger context of, a, of another unanswered question, which was the impact of the Arab Spring uh, on Palestinian politics. Um, the Arab Spring has been felt, I would argue, in Palestinian politics, but in somewhat distorted way given the distorted reality of, of the situation and the continued occupation. Um, you had last March 15th a massive outpouring of demonstrations uh, both in Gaza and in the West Bank. Uh, people forget this but it was quite dramatic. Hundreds of thousands of people came out in the streets in Gaza and, and in the West Bank and people thought, aha, this is it. It's finally, the, the Arab Spring has, has hit Palestine. Um, but what did they ask for? What did they call for? Um, and this is what is interesting. What they, they didn't ask for the, the regime change. Uh, they didn't ask for uh, the sorts of things that um, others in the Arab world were calling for. Because in many ways, they have a lot of the things that, they, that the others have. I mean, Palestine has been, had a very advanced, uh, a large middle class, many of the institutions of, 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 of civil society, of, uh, of free speech, or at least elements of it in certain places. Um, many of the things that other parts of the Arab world have, have yearned for and resented the Palestinians for, frankly. Uh, uh, Let's face it. Um, but what they asked for was for unity. Um, and unity between the West Bank and Gaza and unity uh, between the peoples. Basically, they said, we're tired of this division between Fatah and Hamas. Um, you know, and uh, what it did was it set off uh, an effort to unite the two uh, parties. Uh, and you um, have had two successive agreements now to try to, to bridge this. 
But in my crude analysis, you have a basic problem. The people want unity, but neither side in the, at the leadership level want to pay the price to bring about the unity that the people want. Hamas is essentially content to keep control of uh, Gaza. Fatah and the PA want to keep control of the West Bank. And both want unity on their own terms, and neither are willing to make the concessions that the other one wants. And the only thing, it seems, that's really driving the continued push towards an appearance of unity efforts is the sort of outpouring that you saw uh, last March 15th. And at a certain point, I think when this unity is not achieved, uh, you will see a return to the streets. Um, will they call for unity again? Will they recall for new elections? I don't know. Um, but the other thing that's interesting is that, you know, when you had um, President Abbas stand up uh, uh, within the PLO um, uh, Central Committee and essentially say, you know, I'm not going to run again for new elections, what he did was inadvertently set off a succession struggle within um, Fatah and within the PLO. And what you've seen over the last few years is slow motion succession politics taking place. And this is argued, I would argue, this has worked against the kind of moderate positions that would need to be taken for successful politics to move forward. Because let's face it, uh, that moderate position, especially in the absence of anything really happening on the ground, is not an electoral winner. Um, so if you're running, if you know, if you see yourself as the next president of Palestine, you're probably better off taking a hardline approach that denounces the Israelis rather than one that articulates a vision along the lines that Salam Fayyad does uh, that says, you know, no, I'm going to nonetheless pursue, you know, uh, working with the Israelis despite all the indignities we suffer on, you know, on a daily basis. Uh, I want to tell the story of a Latin American who uh, talks to an Arab. Hassan will appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and asks him, uh, he says, you know, I keep hearing you say inshallah, inshallah. What does this word mean? <laughs> and the Arab says, well, you know, the best thing to describe it is to liken it to what you guys say. In, uh, you know, in Spanish, you say manana. And it, it's the same word as manana. The Latin American says, yes, I understand. But somehow it does not convey the same sense of urgency. <laughs> I'm, afraid, I'm, I'm afraid that's what's lacking in, in, in the there is no sense of urgency uh, on both sides that we are heading to disaster and that if something is not done rather soon I think both sides will, uh, will be surprised uh, not necessarily in a positive manner I'm afraid that's all the word, inshallah. That's the <laughs> all the time we have. Please join me in thanking Osama, Firas, and Rob for an excellent presentation.